Well, we would like to thank you, Nancy, and I would like to thank uh, Pastor Tim and your session here uh, for the invitation to minister among you. Uh, I want to thank everyone who uh, labored this weekend to keep the weekend exciting and those who labored just as hard to keep it not too exciting. And uh, I'd also like to thank the musicians uh, for being the kind of contemporary worship musicians who don't who are masculine, who don't sing uh, Jesus is My Girlfriend songs. And uh, it, it is a uh, glorious, um, it was glorious to worship with you and sing with you, and we're very grateful um, uh, for that. I, uh, I, was, I had a wonderful time Friday night. I, I uh, mentioned earlier that the, uh, I told the elders I had heard, the only disappointment about Friday night was I had heard that I was going to be glitter bombed or that I was... And, and it didn't turn out to be the fact, although I heard also that someone on our team found a bag of glitter there and, and helpfully dropped it in the trash. But I, I told uh, our elders back home that I uh, asked for a prayer about this, that, that I would not be glitter bombed, but that if I were, that I would look fabulous. <laughs> I wanted to... Um, as I bring the word to you this morning, I wanted to divide the message into two parts. Um, the first part, I want to set out some principles of uh, the principles regarding the public square for Christians who want to know how to function in the public square, how to understand our role in the public square. And in the second part, I want to talk about uh, how these principles are tied together by our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a set of abstractions that we're serving, but rather our Lord and Savior. So I've got two parts to the sermon, and I think I caused some consternation in the first service by saying in the first half of the sermon I had 21 points, and which I did. I had 21 points, but if it is helpful to you, you may think of it as three points with subheads. So Abraham Kuyper, the great Reformed theologian, once prime minister of the Netherlands, once said, in any successful attack on freedom, the state can only be an accomplice. The state can only be an accomplice. The chief culprit is the citizen who forgets his duty, wastes away his strength in the sleep of sin and sensual pleasure, and so loses the power of his own initiative. The state that grasps power is at best an accomplice we are the ones who are surrendering. We are the ones who are relinquishing things we have no right to relinquish. So I want to consider 21 quick, uh, I want to go through 21 quick principles. I don't have time to unpack uh, each one, obviously, but I want to mention them. I want to state them clearly and give you a reference in Scripture uh, for each one so you can consider them later. You can reflect on them later. Number one, civil government and rule is a blessing from God and not a necessary evil. Civil government is a blessing from God and not a necessary evil. Second Samuel 23, 3 and 4 says, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds as the tender grass springing up out of the earth by clear shining after rain. We are not 
anarchists. We do not regard civil government as a result of the fall. We believe that the civil magistrate ruling justly is like the sun coming up in the morning. Civil authority is a good thing. It's established by God as a good thing. That's the first principle. Secondly, God establishes a righteous throne with majesty. The authority of a throne, the authority of a ruler, is fundamentally a moral authority. It, if it depends upon raw coercion for everything, it's no, it's no authority at all. God grants authority to the ruler, and he establishes a righteous throne with majesty. In Proverbs 16:12, it says, It is an abomination to kings to commit wit- wickedness, for the throne is established by righteousness. Proverbs 16, 12. And then it says in 1 Chronicles 25, 29, And the Lord magnified Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel and bestowed upon him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. That majesty was a gift to Solomon from God, and it was what equipped him to rule. It's what equipped him to reign righteously. Principle three. The law of God is the soul of a good ruler. The law of God is the soul of a good ruler. In Exodus 18.21 it says, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, notice that, hating covetousness, men who have political power must hate covetousness. Otherwise, democracy turns into uh, three coyotes and a sheep voting on what to have for lunch. Men hating covetousness and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. Down below county commissioner, down to the lowest level, you must have men who fear God and who hate covetousness. Principle three, uh, excuse me, principle four. God requires true humility of his rulers. God requires true humility of rulers. Deuteronomy 17.20, describing the future king of Israel, says that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So God required the ruler to remember the law of God so that he not begin to put on airs, he not get above himself. He must not be lifted up, his heart must not be lifted up above his brethren. Principle five, our basic demeanor towards civil authority should be one of honor. Our basic demeanor should be one of honor. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, the apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 17. What the kings of the earth bring into the new Jerusalem, as it describes at the end of Revelation in Revelation 21, it says the new Jerusalem, which is the Christian church, it says the kings of the earth bring their honor and glory into it. The honor and glory that they bring into the new Jerusalem is not a sham or a pretense. We ought to honor those civil rulers. Principle six, this is where it starts to get a little bit personal. Tyrants love moral corruption. They sometimes pretend that they don't like it, but tyrants love moral corruption. They hate virtuous men. They love moral corruption and they hate virtuous men because... Those who are morally corrupt are manipulable, easily manipulable. Those men who are vertebrates, those men who stand upright, those men who are virtuous are not easily manipulable. As Chesterton once put it, 
Free love is the first and most obvious bribe that you can offer to a slave. Free love is the first and most obvious bribe that you can offer to a slave. Tyrants, therefore, love public entertainments and private vices because they love an enervated people. They love a people sapped of moral strength and authority. Revelation 2 says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So Balaam had taught Balak the way to to overthrow this nation is is by means of a little free love, a little little bit of moral um, disorder. He taught them to commit fornication, and this sapped their strength. Porn is therefore politics. Porn is politics. It reveals your true political allegiances. Forget what yard sign you have out front. <laughs> Forget your bumper stickers. Porn is a secret ballot. And, and porn is the secret ballot that God reckons and that God counts. Principle seven. Absolute perfection in our rulers is not the point. David prays in Psalm 51, Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David is not here praying that he not lose his individual salvation. In that same psalm, he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. He, he doesn't want his salvation back. He wants his joy back. Uh, but what, so what does he mean, take not your Holy Spirit from me? Well, Saul had sinned in such a way as to cause the Spirit to depart from him. And when the Spirit departed from him, the wheels came off of his, his dynasty. The wheels came off of his uh, royal line. And David knew that his sin of murder and adultery, or, uh, reverse the order, adultery and then murder to cover it up, had forfeited his right to the Holy Spirit bestowed on him, enabling him to rule with the same kind of majesty that his son Solomon would have later. He knew that he had forfeited that, and he pleads for mercy. David is a, is a man after God's own heart. He repented the way he ought to have repented, and God granted this request. Not all godly rulers are perfect rulers. In fact, apart from the Lord Jesus, there, there has not been one that's been a perfect ruler. It's said of a number of kings that they were good, like Asa, but that they did not remove the high places. They, they did good stuff here and here and here, but the prophets say they didn't get everything done that they ought to have gotten done. Principle eight, tyranny is a judgment from God for the sins of the people. Tyranny is the judgment from God for the sins of the people. It's not like you have a group of innocent people that God is looking rummaging around uh, for a tyrant to, to visit upon this innocent people. It doesn't work that way. When Samuel warns the people about the king that they wanted to uh, select, not a king according to Deuteronomy 17, but as they said, a king like the other nations. We want a king uh, like the other nations. We want a tyrant. We want job security. Pharaoh offered full employment, remember. What was, the, what was the unemployment rate in Israel before the Exodus? Why? It was zero. And he said, this is the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take. He will take. You're demanding a particular kind of ruler, and you want a ruler to line up with your lusts, and he is going to reflect you, and he's going to take from you. It's not going to turn out the way you think it's going to go. Remember that the God who sends, however, the God who sends these tyrants to chastise us is also the God who has the authority and power to send a deliverer to save us. 
Number nine, every manner of civil government is under the authority of God. God rules in his own name, and princes rule by derivation. Civil rulers are the lieutenants of God. In Romans 13, the word for deacons is used of them several times. Romans 13, 4, for example. The ruler is therefore an appointed, delegated, and deputized servant. The problem with tyranny in the modern, in, in the modern state, the, moder- the problem with the modern secularized state, is they want to be as God. They want to be lords on the earth. They don't want an authority above them. They, the Supreme Court thinks they're the supreme being. The problem is, if you have... Uh, If there is no entity above the state, if there is no God above the state, the state becomes God. If there is no God above the state with practical applied authority over the state, then the state becomes, according to its own claims, the highest authority in the lives of those governed. We Christians deny that. We deny that as a fundamental rock-bottom principle, and consequently, we are enemies of the state. We are enemies of the state that would be God. God establishes these authorities, but he establishes them as deacons. He establishes them as servants. Principle 10, civil disobedience is required when matters of worship and gospel are concerned. As it says in Daniel 3, 18, But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou set up. We're not going to do it. Our God can deliver us, but if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. Our God can deliver us, and as it turned out in that story, he did deliver them, but they're not going to bow down to the the idol anyway. You see the same principle in Acts 5, 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So when they tell you to not preach the gospel, stop preaching the gospel. When they tell you you cannot gather for worship, we simply disobey submissively, respectfully disobey because we must obey God rather than men. We worship anyway. We pray anyway. We teach our children the ways of God anyway. We do what God tells us to do. And not only is it okay to do this, it is obligatory to do this. When gospel and worship, when the fundamental things are at issue, it's obligatory to disregard the state when the state is competing with God. Principle 11, civil disobedience is lawful in other areas as well. If it's not, it's not the gospel purely, uh, but it's still lawful. David honored Saul, and we know that he honored Saul. He would not lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed. We know that David honored Saul, but he did not honor him by turning himself in. Right? David ran around the countryside with Saul hot on his tail, and David was uncooperative with the existing authority. Right? David's picture was in all the post offices, and he didn't say, oh, Romans 13, I've, I've got to turn myself in. Neither did Peter turn himself in, Acts 12, 11. So Peter is uh, rousted out of jail, and he, he jailbreak. <laughs> the apostle Peter in a jailbreak. Or Paul, for, a, uh, for that matter, 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33. When Paul's lowered in a basket uh, at, at Damascus, when he's getting out of there, what is he doing? He's evading arrest. He is running a roadblock. He is being uncooperative. He, it is false and pernicious to say that anything that, any regulation, any rule, anything that somebody cooks up in their fevered brain, that we have to go, oh, we have to go do, we have to go do that. Now, 
We have to be law-abiding people. We have to remember the earlier principles. God has established civil authority for a reason. But one of the reasons tyrants multiply regulations, you know, God gave us... God gave us ten commandments, one book. You could go to the uh, law, nearest law school and, and ask to look at Indiana's legal code. It'll be shelf after shelf after shelf after shelf, right? Why? So that they can always get you for something. Right? If, they, if someone says, oh, see that, that citizen there? We've got some crosshairs on him. Let's get him. All right? All you need is a couple of researchers, and you're going to find some way that he is out of compliance. Well, things like that, we, we, we need to be law-abiding princ- uh, uh, citizens, but we have to be the kind that don't absolutize what people are cooking up in order to trap you. Principle 12, civil government is covenantal and it has a double, double covenantal nature. It involves God, the magistrate, and the people, Second Chronicles 23, 16. God makes a covenant with the magistrate, and the magistrate makes a covenant with the people, and, and all are involved in it. Principle 13, no human authority, civil magistrates included, can be absolute. God alone has absolute authority. Man's authority is always limited and bounded. This is what Nebuchadnezzar confessed when his sanity returned. Daniel 4.35, civil authority is always limited, bounded. 14, not everything that's legal is lawful. Not everything that's legal is lawful. There are many people who are very legalistic. They think if it's legal for them to divorce their wife, it must be lawful for them to be. They'll say things like, well, my, we didn't start dating until after the divorce was final. Well, so? It's legal to take your child's life, as provided the child is in, is in the womb. And now we have ethicists, and try to say ethicists without snorting. We have people... Today, ethicists saying that abortion, the logic of abortion, should translate outside the womb. Well, that sort of thing can be made legal, but it's still what it is. God calls it murder. Fifteen, faithful believers will be accused of lawlessness and treason. You don't want to be guilty of lawlessness and treason, but if you're faithful and you understand these principles, you're going to be accused of it. Ahab was the troubler of Israel so that So that is what he accused Elijah of being. Ahab was the one who troubled Israel, and so he accused Elijah of being the one who troubled Israel. 1 Kings 18, 17. What what had Jezebel done? Jezebel brought in the worship of Baal and his consort, God of fertility. Jezebel and Ahab had bumper stickers printed up for everybody's chariot and wagon and cart, and said um, they wanted the northern kingdom of Israel to go green. We're going, to worship, we're, going to go, we're going to worship the God of fertility. Let's go green. And so God said, very well, you can go green. And Elijah said, it's not going, to, not going to rain for three years. And so Israel immediately went brown. <laughs> and incidentally, if we, if, with, if we keep up with our current go green policy, the same thing is going to happen, more and more brown. Um, socialistic, centralized, we would be as God, centralized planners could be put in charge of the Sahara Desert, and within 20 years, they're going to have a sand shortage. (laughs) 16. The Bible teaches the principle that the consent of the governed is a true principle. Rehoboam was elected to be king, 1 Kings 12.1, and he was no anomaly. 
In Israel, the kings were elected. You don't have any divine right of kings. It's not, you don't have kings parachuting in from the heavens. The consent of the governed, which our founders articulated, is a biblical principle. They, they did not derive it from John Locke. Uh, um, it was, well, they, may have, they learned a number of things from John Locke, but John Locke was drawing on the Christian tradition and scriptural teaching. Principle 17, the lot of the people and the character of their rulers is linked together. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. That means that President Obama represents us. We are tied together with him. Th- those who are uh, ruling over us are causing us to mourn. So when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked bear, when the wicked wear, bear rule, the people mourn. And this is why the first step in public square activity needs to be repentance. It, we get the rule we deserve. We, it's, it is not as though um, alien life forms have been... It's not like we're fighting off an alien invasion. It's, this is... God has constituted uh, society in such a way that people hear what they want to hear, they receive the flattery they want to receive, and so on. As I was preparing to come here, I, I did, did some uh, uh, research on Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey, because of the Kinsey Institute here. And one, there were several things that struck me. One was how ludicrous his research was, how, just, how laughable the whole thing was. And the second thing was the Bible talks about people who heap up teachers for themselves. They have itching ears. Why did, why did something so stupid get the traction it did? It's because the people wanted it to be that way. All right? he, was, he was selling something that people were ready to buy. They need, all they needed was a plausible excuse. All they needed was a thin scientific veneer. It's the same sort of thing with Darwin and evolution. All right, he, uh, he gave them a plausible mechanism, a plausible natural selection. Okay, okay, this is what we want to believe, and so they just latched onto it immediately. We had very low sales resistance. He, he was pitching something that people were ready for. And this is why this is part of the mechanism of how we get the government we deserve. 18, resistance of tyranny is not the same thing as resistance of the established civil order. Jehoiada defended the throne by removing someone from it. Jehoiada defended the throne by removing someone from it, 2 Chronicles 23.11. 19, lesser magistrates, those who were under Jehoiada's authority, obeyed him and they were right to do so, 2 Chronicles 23.1-3. And this is Calvin's famous doctrine of the lesser magistrates. The, um, it is not the case that all power for every level of the magistrate, uh, of the, every level of civil order derives from the king or derives from the highest. It, that's, not the, that's not the case. All authorities are established by God, and they each have their respective levels of authority. 20, we must care what kind of company our rulers keep. We must care what the White House logs look like. Who comes and goes? Who's welcome there? Panders, whores, flatterers, and as one Puritan put it, other mushrooms of the court. Other mushrooms of the court are to be despised. Proverbs 25, 5 says, Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. Take away the wicked 
from before the king and his throne shall be established in righteousness. It matters who the king's hanging out with. It matters who the president visits. It matters what circles he runs in. And last, Christian history matters, including in our definition, including what we find in uh, the, the phrase, the powers that be in Romans 13, 1. Including, excuse me, I garbled that. Included, included in this is our definition of the powers that be. Things like the constitution, the will of the people, the lesser magistrates, and the balances of power. We've been, the gospel has been in the world. Jesus has risen for 2,000 years now. And there's a track record of how, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And that's been working in the gospel, through the progress of the gospel, in, Christian, in nations with a Christian heritage, and there is a legacy, there's a heritage of this sort of thing that's been established, and that's part of the existing authority. Now, let me just set it up for you simply. Suppose, suppose we have a, uh, a Supreme Court decision that comes down the pike one day that says, when the Constitution says that I have the right to keep and bear arms, that this means, if you look at it closely, that I do not have the right to keep and bear arms, Right? The Constitution is a living document, right? Which means it's stretchy, but it only stretches to the left. It's the only direction it stretches. It's a living, malleable uh, document. It only goes in one direction. Now suppose, and there'll be a lot of Christians who say, well, the Supreme Court decided and you have to obey the existing authorities. I would say, wait, wait, wait. Is the Constitution an an existing authority? Is that document an existing authority? Is James Madison in any way an existing authority? Is the Bill of Rights an existing authority? Are the lesser magistrates, the governor and the state courts and all of you, are these all existing authorities? Yes, they are. And we have to, we have to navig- learn how to navigate these waters carefully, not as scofflaws, not as people who are looking for an excuse to become anarchists, but because we want to be diligent, law-abiding, respectful, ornery Christian citizens. That's what we need to learn how to do. So, um, just one quick comment there. um, In the war for independence from Great Britain, what was that war called in England? What did they call that war in England? We call it the American Revolution or the war for independence. What did they call it over there? They called it the Presbyterian Revolt. The Presbyterian Revolt. In the early part of the 17th century, in the first, excuse me, 18th century, the early part of the 1700s, from Ireland, Scots, the Scots-Irish and the Scots, over 600,000 of them immigrated to the United States during those years. It was a huge migration, and all of them were pretty sore at the Anglican English. All of them. And... The the Calvinist pastors, the Presbyterian pastors, were called the Black Regiment during the American War for Independence because they wore black Genevan gowns. They were called the Black Regiment. Horace Walpole in in Parliament, on the floor of Parliament, said, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. Speaking of Witherspoon, who signed the Declaration of Independence and who taught many of the uh, founders. Witherspoon was a, a dynamic force to be reckoned with. Over 50% of the Continental Army were Presbyterians, and the rest were Congregationalists and a handful of Baptists, and all of them were Calvinists. At Yorktown, when Cornwallis surrendered, there was George Washington, conservative, low-church Anglican, George Washington, and all of George Washington's colonels, every last one of them, with one exception, were elders in Presbyterian churches. 
all but one were elders in Presbyterian churches. Cousin America is run off of the Presbyterian parson. And you were taught that it was all about tea. You were, you were, you were taught, you were given a very truncated uh, version of events. It makes a difference whether Jeroboam or Moses writes the history curriculum. You look, look at the history cur- curriculum and you look at the page that says, these are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And a couple of calves. These are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then you look at the spine and it says Jeroboam Press. Dan, Bethel, New York, London. Or you look at the spine and it says Moses. Right? Moses Press. It, make, it makes a difference who's telling you what happened. It makes a difference how these things are recorded. It makes a difference how these things are unpacked. So, this is a very important thing that I want to... Uh, th- these are great principles. I think they're biblical principles. I think they're right out of the book. But here's the problem. We are saved not by principles, however true. We are saved by the prince, the Lord Jesus. Our faith, our religion is personal. When we worship here today, we are worshiping God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the tri-personal God. We are gathered up by him and ushered into the heavenly places where we are now. We are in Bloomington and we are in heaven. We are before the throne of God, together with all God's saints everywhere, and God is doing this because he's united us to himself in a personal way. Jesus the person, Jesus our Lord, was crucified in a very public way. And his death necessarily has public ramifications. If, if the, the secular state does not want the Christian faith in the public square, I would say you should have thought of that before you crucified Jesus in public. Before you did it out in front of everybody, you should have anticipated what was coming down the pike. But they didn't anticipate, they didn't understand, they didn't know. There's no way to be fully faithful to the message of the death death and resurrection of Jesus in private. Private faith in this public event cannot, in the very nature of the case, remain private. In 1 Corinthians 2, I'd like to read verses 1 through 10. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 10. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among those that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world, key phrase, that come to naught. The princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden, hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. We see a number of glorious things hinted at, a number of other glorious things stated in this text. Paul came to the Corinthians. When he came to the Corinthians, he did not come as a showboating preacher man in verse 1. 
I didn't come with all my rhetoric lessons intact. He resolved to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified, verse 2. But this does not mean what many individualistic moderns assume, that he came for Christ and him crucified, applies to your soul, and it gets your soul up into heaven when you die, and that's it. No. Paul says that he was among them in a real state of inadequacy, as men would measure it, verse 3. He recalled his messages as being the same way, verse 4, not with man's wisdom, but with God's power. He did not want them to have faith in the wrong thing. That is, he did not want them to have faith in pretty boy preachers instead of in God's power, verse 5. We do speak wisdom, he said, but it's not the wisdom of this world's princes who are coming to nothing, verse 6. We speak a hidden wisdom. A hidden wisdom now revealed on the cross. Jesus is crucified in public and it's now revealed what God's up to. The resurrection declares it. Right? The, plant, the, the trap was sprung when Jesus died. The trap was revealed when Jesus rose. In Romans 1.4 uh, 1, it says, He was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection was God's sermon, God the Father's sermon, God the Father's declaration of what he had done three days before. So we speak a hidden wisdom now revealed, and, it's now, and God ordained this in the world, before the world, for our glory. Verse 7, if the princes of this world had known what was up, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 8, in doing this, they arranged for a spectacular blessing for those who love God. Verse 9, what happened when the crowd whipped up into a frenzy by the devil, by his demons, that crowd was yelling, crucify him, crucify him. What was happening? The devil was arranging for your salvation. The devil was arranging for your sins to be forgiven. He didn't know that that, that's what he was arranging He didn't know that that's how he was being used. All he could see is that he had a chance to kill Jesus. And he was blinded by his hatred. But if the rulers of this age had known what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. Verse 9. Well, in verse 9 it says, God is arranged for this blessing for us. And what this consists of is revealed by the Holy Spirit, verse 10. Now you've, I have no doubt here... uh, here in this church, you've no, no doubt heard many times a warning against uh, like a petty individualism, that, that the point of salvation is to pray a little prayer. The, this world is God's Vietnam, and praying the sinner's prayer is God helicoptering you out. So, you, um, so we, God helicopters you out to heaven, and then the whole thing collapses in ruin, and the devil is the run of the place. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. We see the danger of this individualistic understanding in a wrong understanding of verse 2. I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If this truth is all about getting individual souls into heaven after they die, then the application of this is going to create private clubs like ham radio clubs or quilting clubs and religious theology clubs and we meet Sunday mornings and then we talk about certain things of, of private interest to us and we then... Uh, die and go to heaven. That's, that's a mystery cult view of the Christian church. That's not what Jesus was up to. Preaching Christ and him crucified, taken in this truncated way, limits it to the salvation of invisible souls after they depart from this world. And the state is more than happy to let you have that. We will let you have all future worlds after you die. Oh, thank. <laughs> Thanks. 
But note how Paul approaches this. This message is a message that topples the princes of this world, the princes of this world who are coming to nothing. This is a message that happens now. This means that the princes of this world who have been toppled by the death of Jesus and who have been declared toppled by his resurrection from the dead, that means that everything under their previous jurisdiction now belongs to Jesus. It now is owned by him. Everything. This means art. This means music. This means politics. This means economics. This means exploration. This means scientific investigation. This means cooking and anything else that men and women do. It's all under the authority of Jesus. Rightly understood, therefore, preaching Christ and him crucified is as broad as the world. It's as big as the world. It encompasses the whole world. Jesus bought this world with his own blood. And he rose again from the dead, therefore laying claim to it. In the Great Commission, Jesus doesn't say, go disciple the nations. He doesn't say that. And if you go disciple the nations, if you go evangelize, you're disobeying. Jesus says, therefore go disciple the nations. Therefore go. Whenever you see the therefore, what's it there for? What, what is prior? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, therefore go. Tell them. It's given to me, all authority in heaven and on earth. How many Christians believe that Jesus has all authority on earth? Think about this for a minute. Walk up to a thousand evangelical Christians. Do a survey. A thousand evangelicals say, who's the God of this earth? Who's the Lord of this earth? Devil, the devil, the devil, the devil, Satan, the devil, Satan, the devil. And we wonder why things are going poorly. Who's the God of this world? Jesus. Now, why does the Bible say that Satan was the God of this world? The word there is age. And, and Paul teaches that the princes of this age came to nothing. They, came cra- they crashed and burned. They all came tumbling down. How? Because Jesus died. We'll see in a minute. There are three, there are three uh, ways of understanding the atonement uh, that have been developed in Christian uh, history all of them scriptural, and they only cause problems if you, take one, if you take them in isolation from one another. First is the one you're most accustomed to, the Anselmian view. This is the view that's emphasized in the Protestant Reformed world, which is good that it's emphasized because it's true. It was first systematically de- developed by Anselm of Canterbury, and this is the idea that Christ died as a penal substitute, as a substitutionary vicarious um, sacrifice for us and for our sins. We're familiar with this language, and it's right and proper that we are. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. That phrase, the just for the unjust, refers to the vicarious death of Christ on the cross. That's the Anselmian view, substitutionary atonement. Another medieval schoolman, a man named Abelard, developed the view that Christ died as a moral example. For us. Now, this is what liberals teach, but, and, it's, and it's pretty anemic and pretty inadequate by itself. Jesus died as an example of show, showing us how to turn the other cheek and how, not, how to be sweet when people are being mean. Um, but together with the others, it's pretty potent. It's also in the Bible. The idea is that by sacrificing himself in this way, he provides a pattern of moral influence. We see immediately that this is pitifully inadequate in isolation, but it is in the Bible. 1 Peter 2.21, 
For even thereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Leaving us an example. So Jesus shows us how to live and die. Jesus shows us how we overcome in a death and resurrection pattern. That's how we're told to take up our cross daily and follow him. So the cross does provide an example to follow. It's not just that, but it does provide that. Then the third view is called Christus Victor. In this view, the death of Jesus is seen as him triumphing over the devil and his angels, and that's what we've been talking about from 1 Corinthians 2. This too is biblical, but not in isolation. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers... He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So what did Jesus do in his death? He triumphed over principalities and powers. That was what brought the princes of this world to nothing. They said, kill him, kill him, kill him. And then when he was dead, everything came unraveled for them. He humiliated them by springing a trap. He humiliated them by telling them, you thought you were getting rid of the Son of God, and what you did is you... you, killed the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, and you just accomplished the salvation of all God's elect. All God's elect. And what instrument was in God's hand when he did that? The devil. Right? God draws straight with crooked lines. God knows what he's doing. Now, in this, one of the songs we sang earlier, we, we referred to the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Well, all three of these views of the atonement line up with that. He's the prophet, Abelardian. He's a teacher. He's an example. That's the Abelardian approach. Priest, Anselm. That's the Anselmian view. And then King, Christus, Victor. All prophet, priest, and king. Christ embodies when he died on the cross. So, what do we do? Jesus was not murdered in private by thugs, only to come back from the dead in secret. He was not killed in a back alley, and then he came back and... in in secret and tiptoed up to one of his disciples and said, I'm now alive. Pass it on. That's not what he was doing. No. He was executed publicly by the authorities and he rose from the dead in such a way as to declare his absolute authority over all the kingdoms of men and over everything that they contain. What does it say in Psalm 2? In the first three verses, it's a prophecy of the crucifixion. Then it says in the next few verses that God laughs, God holds them in derision. And then it says the Lord's, uh, uh, it, it prophesies the resurrection. Um, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Uh, that's the resurrection. That's not talking about the eternal generation of the son within the Trinity. Because in Acts 13, it says what God promised for us, he is, he, what God has promised for us, their children, he has um, fulfilled in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I've begotten you. And then, right after God raises up Jesus, you are my son, firstborn from among the dead, what does he say in the second psalm? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. Jesus, you have risen from the dead. Tell me what you want. Jesus doesn't say, you know, I did all that, but I don't want anything. I'm going back to heaven. No, he said, I want it all. I want Thailand. I want Pakistan. I want Saudi Arabia. I want North America. I want South America. I want Africa. I want all of these things. I bought them. I'm taking them home. I purchased them all with my blood. I'm taking them with me. And 
And those who motivated the rulers of this world to crucify him in public cannot unspring the trap. They, they cannot go back and say, oh, wait, 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 we, now that we see what, what you're doing, we don't want to have anything to do with it. We want to reverse what we did. We want to have not killed the Lord of glory. We want to have not crucified him. No, it's too late. So we have to learn how to see the cross in these terms, which is what Paul is insisting on. So when we preach Christ and him crucified, we are preaching the hope and glory of the world. What God has prepared for us who love him here on this earth has not begun to enter into the heart of man. What is God preparing to pour out over this entire world? What is God planning to do with this planet? His purpose, his plan, his goal is to inundate this world with his mercy, to inundate this world with his grace. And he's going to do it not by social activism and not by lobbying and not by, that's not how he's going to do it. He's going to do it by means of his preachers, his, his ministers of the gospel, declaring the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and inviting all people everywhere to come to him by faith alone and then trust in him and then be gathered together with his people. That's what he's doing. What is God's intent, saving intent for this sorry world? He is going to inundate this sorry and sinful world with the deep things of God. When the earth is as finely as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, those seas will be infinitely deep. In thinking about the greatness of the Great Commission, we don't have to worry about overdoing it. We don't have to worry about going beyond. When God says, what eye has not seen, what ears not heard, I'm prepared. We don't have to say, well, I think I'm, I'm afraid of overrunning what God is promising. Paul says he prays for the Ephesians, that they would be able to know the unknowable and grasp the ungraspable, they, that they would be filled to all the fullness of the, that they, they would be filled with the fullness of God, the one who fills all things. How do you think you're going to ask beyond that? How do you think you're going to expect or believe beyond that? It's not going to happen. God is good. And God has given his son to save this world, and he did it in public. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.